All right. Well, if you would, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, or if you want to use your worship guide, it's printed there. Turn to Genesis 18. We've been in this long series uh, every week looking at the various stories uh, of Abraham that later in the New Testament is called the father of all who believe. And so uh, we're looking at the, it's sort of like our, our, our great, 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 great grandfather in the faith. And, uh, you know, the, one of the beautiful things about the fact that God reveals himself in these stories is that, uh, and that Abraham is like our great-grandfather, is it reminds us that God meets us in our story as well. And so as we read this, I want to invite you um, to uh, open your mind and your heart and your imagination to what's going on here. And we're going we're gonna to read it, and I want to show you some things. But ultimately, the goal here is that we would turn our eyes to Jesus and that we would worship him. Because all of these stories are really about him. So if you would, uh, let's look at the text in Genesis 18, uh, 1 through 15, together. And the Lord appeared to him. That's to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes, looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. And wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and he said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it, make some cakes. And Abraham ran out to the herd, and he took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took the curds and the milk of the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, Oh, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, No, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, what a strange story. 
Uh, at first, reading this story is a little like, okay, yeah, we've, you know, we've sort of heard this before. God appears to Abraham and he makes promises and most of those have to do with a son, right? Seems a little familiar. Um, but there's, uh, there's a lot here that's easy to miss if we just blow through it. So I kind of want to move through some parts of the story a little slowly and show you some of the things that are so easy to miss. I have heard this story read and read this story over and over again countless times throughout my life. And this week, preparing for this sermon, I'm still seeing new things. There is so much here. So I'm going to show you uh, some things. First of all, consider the way this story starts out. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Okay, and the Lord appeared to him. It starts out naming Abraham with a pronoun. Now, what that tells us as readers is this story doesn't quite stand on its own because one of the main characters, they don't even name him at first, they just use a pronoun. What that signals to us is that this story is sort of a part two, a continuation of the story from last week. Do you guys remember what happened in Genesis 17? In Genesis 17, God showed up and he made a covenant with Abraham. Covenant is super strong promise that's sealed in blood. And so this story is sort of a continuation of that one. It says, and the Lord, that's all capital letters, that tells us English readers that in the Hebrew, the word there is Yahweh, which is God's personal name, That the one that when Moses was at the burning bush and he said, what's your name? What should I tell the people? Who are you? And God said, my name is Yahweh, and that means I am who I am. So the I am God, our personal God, it says that he appeared to him, Abram, at the Oaks of Mamre. Something else here, the word appeared. If you guys remember way back in this series, we spent a lot of time with that English word appeared and the Hebrew word behind it, which is depending on which school of Hebrew pronunciation you find, it's either yira or ra'ah. I'm going to use ra'ah because I, I like the way that one sounds. Uh, but it starts off, it says, the Lord appeared ra'ah to him. Well, we've seen that before. That Hebrew word ra'ah means appeared, but not appeared as in like an esoteric, vision or dream or some cloudy appearance no it means like you see with your eyes like i'm looking at you and you're looking at me the lord appeared to abram now we've heard that before in fact that's happened um two other times in abram's story we had little stories that started with the lord appeared ra'ah to abram first one was in genesis 12 when the Lord called Abram, remember God called Abram out of Babylon to go to Canaan, and he made him a promise. He said, I'm going to give, I'm going to make you a blessing, I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you offspring. Well, in that story, it says that God called Abram out of where he was, uh, and then the Lord, Ra'ah, the Lord appeared to Abram. 
and reiterated that promise, land, offspring, blessing. A little later in Abraham's life, in Genesis 17, which was last week, it said, it says, Genesis 17, 1, it says that when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord Ra'ah appeared to him. And that's the passage where God took his promise for land, offspring, and blessing, and graduated it to a covenant, which is super strong promise, sealed in blood. So the first time we see the Lord Ra'ah appeared, he became visible to Abram. He gives Abram a promise, land, offspring, blessing. The second time the Lord Ra'ah appears to Abram, he graduates the promise to a covenant, super strong promise. And now we have the third time it says that the Lord Ra'ah appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre. So we need to, when we read this first sentence, we need to know this story doesn't stand on its own. God is already doing something in Abram's life. Years before he appeared, Ra'ah gave him a promise. Years after that, God appears, Ra'ah doubles down on the promise. And now for a third time, God appears, Ra'ah. Do you know what he does this time? There is a promise. There was a doubling down of that promise with the covenant. And now that that progression continues, and now he shows Abram what it means to live under that promise, what it means to live in the covenant. A promise comes by way of words. A covenant comes by way of a ceremony. And now living within the covenant comes by way of a real life experience. And that's what we see in this passage. This story is about what it means, or maybe even better stated, what it looks like to live under God's covenant of grace. Now that's important for all of us, because if you are looking to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're part of Abraham's family. And that means you live under God's covenant of grace. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a believer? What is it that we're even trying to do here together? Well, there's a picture, a story, right here in Genesis 18, 1 through 15, of what that means. That's the kind of story we're interacting with here. So I have two things from this story that really stand out to answer the question, what does it mean to live under God's covenant of grace? Two things that I really believe God was showing to Abraham in this story, what it means to be a believer. And these are two things that I believe he shows to us when we would ask, what does it mean to be a believer? Here's the first thing. God was showing Abraham that living under his covenant means living with mystery. So if you're a sermon note taker, that's, this is like your, number, your, your first thing. What was God showing Abraham here? Well, God was showing Abraham that living under God's covenant, living as a believer, means living with mystery. Every week in these stories, we've been asking the same question. Who is Abraham's God in this passage? And who is Abraham's God in this passage? Well, he is a mysterious God. He is full of mystery. Consider this. 
as we read this story, I'm going to go through it one more time. Ask yourself, who exactly is Abraham interacting with here? In some places, it says he interacts with the Lord. I mean, it starts off with the Lord appeared to him. But then in other places, he interacts with three men. And the passage doesn't explain this. In some sentences, we find singular verbs and pronouns referring to the Lord. And in other sentences, we find plural verbs and pronouns. Listen to this. Just I'll just let me go through some pieces of this story. It starts off the Lord, that's singular, that's the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. He appears to Abram by the oaks of Mamre. Uh, and then verse 2, uh, Abram lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So was it the Lord, or was it three men? And then it goes on, and he ran from the tent door to meet uh, when he saw them, plural, he ran from the tent door to meet them, plural, and he bowed to the earth and said, O oh Lord! That's singular. Now that one's not all caps. That one means like, my Lord, like my master. That's a polite way of addressing somebody. So maybe Abram at this point hadn't realized that he was talking to God. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We don't know. We know that the Lord appeared and that there were three men and that Abram is talking to somebody. So he goes on and it says in verse 4, Let a little water be brought to wash your feet. That's plural. And rest yourselves under the tree. That's plural. While I bring a morsel of bread that you, plural, may refresh yourselves and that you may pass on. And it goes on. It says they said. That's plural. So, okay, clearly we're dealing with three people here. Uh, so we, they eat. We skip down to verse 8. He, uh, Abram took curds of milk and the calf and sent it before them. That's plural, of course. And they ate. Okay, yeah. Okay, clearly it's just three men. And then it says in verse 9, They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? Abram says she's in the tent. And then the Lord. Singular again. Wait, I thought we sorted this out. Is it one or is it three? Verse 10, The Lord said, I'll surely return to you. Sarah's listening to the tent door. Uh, verse 12, she laughed to herself. Verse 13, the Lord, singular. Did the author know what he was doing? Did he go to the first semester English grammar class in college? Did he go to... Okay, uh, verse 13, the Lord, singular again. It goes on. Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? You guys get the point? There's no pattern to the changing back and forth here. It says the Lord appeared visibly to Abram. And then it says Abram looks up and he sees three men. And then it goes on. Sometimes it's they, sometimes it's them, sometimes it's he, sometimes it's the Lord. Which is it? Well, various parts of the Christian world throughout time have tried to interpret this in different ways. One interpretation, which you might be thinking right now, comes from the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the Eastern Church, and they have a long history of interpreting this as an appearance of the Lord as Trinity. Our God is one, but he's also three, and the three in one are not conflicting. 
He's perfectly three and perfectly one all at the same time. And each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are equal in substance, power, and glory. So clearly, here's a passage where the Lord shows up, and it's three people. And they have a long tradition of interpreting it that way. And there might be something there, but you know what? The text just doesn't say. It says the Lord, and it says three men. Now, there's one other passage in the Bible, if the Eastern tradition is right, and this is some sort of visible manifestation of the Trinity, that would put this passage right alongside the only other passage where we see Father, Son, and Spirit all together in one place, and that would be at Jesus' baptism, where Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove, and we hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And that passage in the Scripture is a huge deal. It's like when you read that, we, you can't miss what's happening. It's very clear. Here we have Father, Son, and Spirit all together. So I wonder if this particular passage, if it was intended by the Holy Spirit himself who inspired it to be a proof text for the Trinity, I tend to think it would be a little more obvious or that the text would actually say. But maybe it is. You know what? We don't know. We can't nail it down because it doesn't say. Now, there's a, just, that's the Eastern tradition, I guess, for you guys. That's over here. <laughs> the Western tradition interprets it a little differently. And the Western tradition, which is kind of the tradition that we would come out of, it's, oh, this is the Lord, singular, accompanied by two angels. Clearly, the three is, so God shows up, and sometimes Abram's just talking to the Lord. He's probably standing in the middle. And but other times, it's addressing the whole group, the other two angels. And this interpretation comes because in the next chapter, two angels, the Lord says at the end of chapter 18, I'm going to go down and look at Sodom. And then in chapter 19, two angels go down. And the basic interpretation, and if you watch the you know, the made-for-TV Abraham movie that came out in the 90s, if you watch that, what it looks like is the Lord is the one in the middle, and there's two angels on the side, and uh, it's perfectly clear. Where There's a problem with that view also, because it just doesn't say. What it does say is the Lord appeared, Abram looked up, and there was three men. Further, it doesn't quite add up, because at the end of chapter 18, the Lord says, I'm going to go down and see what's going on at Sodom. And chapter 19 starts with the two angels. Two angels went to Sodom. So it doesn't, that side doesn't quite add up earlier or either. It, doesn't add, it didn't add up earlier. It doesn't add up now, but it doesn't add up either. So what is going on here? Who is Abram talking to? How many people are the Lord? Uh, what's going on? And folks, I believe that the best answer is we simply don't know. The author, when Moses authored this, when the Hebrew editors came after him and, and arranged it the way it is, and the Holy Spirit worked in all of those people to give us his trustworthy word that tells us everything we need to know for life and salvation, the authors and the Holy Spirit decided not to tell us the explanation of how this works out. 
What we know and what we can be sure of is the Lord appeared to Abram, Abraham, and Abram looked up and there were three men. And sometimes it says that Abraham is talking to the Lord. Sometimes it says he talks to three men. And that's just one of many questions and mysteries around this passage. We could sit here all day and think of some. If you get our weekly email, every week in our weekly email, there's a little devotional that I write for us every week to help prepare for the sermon. This week I invited you guys to read this passage and write down as many questions as you can that this passage raised in your mind. And I hope if you did the exercise, you learned that there is a lot in this passage that just doesn't seem to make sense. This is the only passage in the whole Bible well, in the whole Old Testament, uh, where God eats. There's other places where there's food involved, but it's always people eating or a sacrifice. That's the only time God shows up and God eats. Abram doesn't eat. If we look at the New Testament, there are times when Jesus sits and eats with his disciples, and technically that is God eating, but this should stand out. What's going on here? Does God need to eat? Does God eat food? Also, it doesn't say that Abram saw them coming from a long way off. It just says they were there. What happened? Well, I think you get the point. Why is it framed this way? Is it framed this way because Moses and the Holy Spirit is a bad writer? No, of course not. It's framed this way because Moses and the Holy Spirit working through him, they're trying to signal to us as readers that this was a mysterious event that isn't explainable, isn't adequately explainable through the words we see here on the page. At the same time, this was a very simple event. God appears, there were three men. End of story. Very simple. And that right there, a truth that on one hand can be so complicated that it just doesn't add up, but on the other hand, it's so simple that it a little child couldn't understand it. You put those things together and what you get is the kind of mystery that we find throughout all of the Bible. One of the big ideas in this passage that God is trying to show Abram and trying to show us that when it comes to him and his kingdom, what it means to live in his covenant, not everything about our life and our faith and our walk with God is explainable. There's mystery. Now that confronts us, doesn't it? At least it confronts many of us. Many of us are not comfortable with mystery, especially in our tradition, the Reformed tradition, which is one part of that Western tradition we talked about earlier. One of the things about our tradition is we love spending time to try to figure out every little theological nuance about God and shine light in every mysterious corner so that in the end we produce a systematic theology where the, everything balances and everything adds up and we have it all figured out. And that's wonderful. As long as we know that we're never going to completely get there. God is mysterious. You know, Sarah in this passage was not comfortable with living with mystery, was she? I love what happens. God says, where is your wife? He says, she's in the tent, as if God didn't know. <laughs> and he says, call her out here. 
Oh, no. He says, this time next year, she's going to have a son. And she hears in the tent and she laughs. Oh, yeah, right. That's hilarious. I'm an old lady. That's not going to happen. He's an old man. It's really not going to happen. And then God says, call her out here. And she goes out there and God says, why did you laugh? She goes, oh, I, I, I didn't laugh. And he says, you laughed. Did you know those are the only words on record that God says to Sarah in this whole story? No, you laughed. She wasn't comfortable with the mystery. And God graciously confronts her in that. Folks, <clears throat> um, it says in Romans 1 that from that it's clear from the creation of the world, from the things that he has created. We can look out, we can see trees and sky and water and rain, feel wind. And the creation makes it clear to everyone all over the world that God exists and that he's powerful, that he's majestic and worthy of our worship. But we as people are so uncomfortable with that truth that we suppress it. In the first chapter of his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin reflects on that idea in Romans 1 and talks about what he calls the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine. And that's that internal sense that every single person has that God exists, that he's powerful, and that he's majestic and worthy of worship. We see out in the world that it's true. It's obvious. But we get so uncomfortable confronted with the mysterious God who made all of this that we don't understand. And we're so, we feel such a need to worship that we would rather, as Calvin teaches us, we would rather take wood and stone and fashion idols made of our own hands that we completely understand and bow down to them and call them God. We would rather bow before an idol depraved of any mystery than we would fall before the living God who created the mysterious heavens and the earth. And that's true of every single person. So what does it mean to live under God's covenant? What is God trying to show Abraham? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, one thing it means that we see in this passage is it means living with mystery. There are not answers to every question. Here's the second thing. Living under God's covenant means living in living under God's covenant means living in relationship. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to experience God's covenant of grace? It means getting comfortable with mystery, and it means you are not going to be what Neil Diamond called a solitary man. You're not going to be what John Dunn called an island. You're living in relationship. Who is Abraham's God? Well, he is a relational God. That's part of who he is. You know, whether or not this is a picture of the Trinity or not, I, we don't know. Maybe. I kind of hope so. That would be cool. But whether it is or not, God's appearance as three people is a statement. It says something. It means something. God's sitting down to eat the food that Sarah made means something. 
God allowing Abram to come and treat him in the, in, in, according to the ancient Near East customs, and even in many places in the ancient Near East, these customs continue today, customs of high hospitality. For Abram to go out and welcome a guest, even in the heat of the day, and wash the guest's feet. God is, it's almost like he's going out of his way to show how much he values relationship. Now, there's a great commentary on this passage. I want to tell you about it. Uh, it comes in the form of a painting. It comes from the 15th century. The Russian painter Andrei Rublev painted this scene. And Andrei saw something in this passage. Andrei Rublev saw something in this passage that I think is relevant for us. But before I tell you about it, I, I kind of want to give you a marginal note here, something I think is, is really important for us. Uh, Andrei Rublev painted this painting. He, he, he was Russian. He's part of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And he painted this with the intention that it be used as an icon in worship. Now, uh, the second commandment uh, forbids us from making images of God, especially from using them in worship. So I want to be careful. Uh, I want to talk about I want to assume the best from Andrei Rublev's tradition and talk about the painting as a commentary, something that tells us about the passage. But I'm not showing it to you here, and I don't want to invite you. We don't want to use it as an object of our worship. We should know that it was intended to be made that way, but uh, I believe that God in his grace allows us to see something else there that Rublev also intended, and value that. So before I talk about the painting and the icon, I just want to make that clear. This is a visual commentary we're learning from. It's not a visual aid for our worship, okay? Okay, so Rublev's painting. Uh, in the Orthodox tradition that we talked about before, there's a heavy emphasis on the three men representing the Trinity. So Rublev sat down and he painted these three men, and his intention was to paint them as a manifestation of the Trinity. We just talked about that. Let's talk about what we can learn from the painting. In the painting, the three men are sitting around a table. And they're, uh, the three men, they're, the way it's painted, their bodies, they're all kind of leaning over the table. Their bodies make a circle. And on the table is a single cup. So the, the three men and the circle and the cup uh, kind of emphasize unity and threeness, unity and plurality together. But what's interesting about the painting is they're huddled around this cup at this table. It makes this circle, but the table itself is square. And so with the three men, let's just use, um, uh, you can just imagine a square table. We look at this one if you'd like. If we have three people, one here, one here, one here, it leaves the front of the table open. And when you look at the painting, you have the three men, unity and threeness, a cup on the table. But the way that it's framed, and part of why it's considered to be such a masterpiece, is as a viewer, when you look at the painting, you get the illusion that you're being invited in to take the fourth seat at the table. And what Rublev was trying to do was trying to communicate. <clears throat> that when God came to Abram in the form of these three men, and he sat down to eat. It wasn't just a meal. It was an invitation to a deep communion. Eating meals together in the ancient Near East, we find it throughout the whole Bible, is very significant, but especially after covenant-making. 
Remember how this story, it's a continuation of the last one. When two people would make a covenant, they did the thing with the animals, and they would often sit down and eat together, and sort of like what a handshake means in our culture when you buy something off a of Craigslist. It seals the deal. Well, in the ancient Near East, sitting down to eat together, and Rublev's painting helps us to see, gives us a commentary to show us that this was no ordinary meal. God was inviting Abram to rich table fellowship. Now, up until this point in the story, God has shown himself as El Elyon, God Most High, El Roy, God who sees, God the Watcher, El Shaddai, an empowering provider. But now, after the covenant, the personal promise bound, sealed in blood, after the covenant is sealed, he sits down to a meal to show up and experience, for Abram to experience him as a community of friends. Thus far, God, Most High, El Elyon, kind of far away. God, El Roy, the Watcher kind of far away. God, El Shaddai, the empowering provider, kind of far away. But here, come and sit down at my table. That's strong. So who is God in this passage? Well, he is a mysterious God. He's a relational God. What does all this mean? Well, it gives us a picture of what it means to be a Christian, to live under God's covenant. Okay, got it. Charlie, what am I supposed to do with this? Okay, well, um, God's self-manifestation in this passage is a mysterious relational God. This directs us. It should direct us. It's designed to direct our hearts and our minds, our imaginations, to Jesus. Rublev's painting is a good commentary, but a terrible image of who God is. Not just because of the second commandment, although that's enough, but because Jesus Christ himself is the image of the invisible God. And when we see God manifesting himself visibly here in the scripture and acting out a lesson to teach Abraham what it means to live with him, God is giving us a picture of Jesus. It's almost like God is framing out a silhouette shaped like a man that when Jesus comes and shows up on the scene, he steps into the outline and fills the painting and we see, oh, it was a painting of him the whole time. Jesus is God made apparent, God ra'ah, God showing himself, God visible. Colossians 1.15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God's, Jesus is a picture of God's mystery. He is the mystery of God made known. It says in Colossians that in Jesus, the fullness, think about that, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ, a human being. That blows our minds. It says in Colossians 1.26 that the glory of the great mystery hidden for ages is now revealed and God's people, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is the visible image of God. He's God made ra'ah. Jesus is the mystery of God before our very eyes. And Jesus Christ is God reaching out to us to bring us into relationship says in Colossians that through Jesus, God 
has acted to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. And today, Jesus Christ is ascended to the right hand of the Father, which means at God's table today sits a human being. Think about that. Rublev's commentary painting was like a was like a like a signal to direct our eyes to the seat at the table that we're invited to and right next to where we're invited to sits another human being which shows us as we respond to God's invitation we're going to meet God at a place where we belong so there's also, that's what it means for us, is that we look at this and we see Jesus. Jesus is the mystery of God revealed. Jesus is God's relational invitation to us. And then this passage ends with kind of an invitation. We think about Sarah's response. Notice that God is not content to commune with Abraham alone. He says, where is your wife? And if you've been tracking through our story, we've seen over and over him, over and over again, Abraham is pushing his wife aside, tries to sell her off to Egypt. He tries to be with another woman. He keeps diminishing Sarah. Well, when God shows up here, he says, Abram, where's your wife? Bring her out here. God is inviting Sarah to share in what he has with Abraham. She belongs there. And then when he makes the promise, and you know, she had laughed and she's, she's afraid. She says, oh, I, I didn't laugh. And he says, no, you did. God doesn't say that in a condemning way. He says that because he knows her. He says it as a friend. No, I know you, you laughed. And so for all of us, as we hear these, this story, as we hear about Jesus, as we're given this picture of what it means to be a Christian, some of us, by God's grace, are like Abraham in this passage. We've run out to meet the Lord, and we're enjoying fellowship and this mystery with God. But some of us here are kind of like Sarah, maybe because of something we've done, or maybe like Sarah because of something that was done to you. You're afraid, and you don't want to go all in with God's invitation. It's too mysterious. It's too much. I don't know what he's going to do to me. I don't know what he's going to do to my life. It's too unpredictable. I'm just going to stay out here and kind of watch what's going on in hope, just kind of watch what's going on in faith, but I'm not ready to own it. And brothers and sisters, I want to say to you right now, God says, come on out. Come on out of the tent. I know you. I'm not going to condemn you. And the reason God does that is because he has already come after you in Jesus Christ. His table is open. There's already a human being sitting there who calls himself your brother who says, come join us. That's who Jesus is. So if that's you, I want to invite you. Come out of the tent. Put your faith in Christ. Embrace the mysterious God because he is ready to embrace you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us your truth. 
and your, your Christ for us to see and hear in these stories. Lord, we, uh, we are incapable uh, of taking in the fullness of who you show yourself to be. Um, but that's okay. You've invited us to mystery. Lord, I pray for every person in this room. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who wholeheartedly embrace uh, relationship with you, even though we don't understand it. And Lord, I'd like to specifically pray for anyone in this room or who's watching online, or maybe even our family members who aren't here, or neighbors who aren't here. Lord, would you call all of us out of our tents of unbelief? Would you bring us to yourself, to your table, to sit down and eat and drink with you? Help us to trust Jesus for salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.